Uh, let's ask God uh, to help us understand his word. Our true and living God, our Father, we pray in your mercy uh, that we would know our Lord Jesus, God with us, and all the encouragement and comfort of that. And we would uh, know what the salvation he brings is uh, for ourselves. And help me in my weakness to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, today the creed moves from heaven to earth, from eternity into history, as it calls believers to confess the fact, the manner and the motive of the only Son of God, the eternal word who is with God and is God, becoming man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what the word incarnation means, the eternal Son taking on our humanity. And that is what in the creed we confess to believe. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. In these words you have the fact of the incarnation. He came down from heaven and was made man. The manner of the incarnation. By the power of the Holy Spirit the eternal Son became incarnate from the Virgin Mary the motive for the incarnation for us, and it says men, but it's, that's all humans, women and men, for us and for our salvation. And in these words you have also both the glory and the offence of the Christian message. The offence, the challenge to humanity's desire to close our world to God, to believe that we are okay on our own. And the glory a God who, while transcendent, the almighty creator, is close, God with us, a God who can embrace humility and weakness and yet save, who experiences rejection and hatred and yet loves and triumphs in love. Let's start thinking about this by thinking about the fact. He came down from heaven and was made man. It's plain in the gospel record that everyone thought Jesus was a real man, that no one doubted that the Jesus they were dealing with was a human just like them, even if doing and saying extraordinary things. And the most persuasive testimony to his humanity is that of his enemies, who had no doubt they could kill him. And in killing him, snuff out the movement he had started. They thought he was truly a man, mortal, like themselves. But the creed wants us to pause and think about what was obvious to Jesus' contemporaries. Pause in the light of what we've just confessed in the phrase before, that this is the Son of God. The Lord Jesus is the Son of God, not an exalted man, but the eternal Son sent by the Father into our world. And in confessing he was made man, we are confessing two things. Firstly, that the Son became human. 
he took on and shared what is common to us all. And secondly, that he became human in the way we all do, by becoming a particular human, a man, the man Jesus. So let's think about both. The son became human. We're confessing that the Lord Jesus had a full and complete human nature. He wasn't just a human body inhabited by the divine word, the eternal word, substituting, as it were, for his human soul or mind. He had a complete humanity, body and soul, mind and spirit. And as Jesus, born of Mary, God and man, God with us, he shared in common human experience from the beginning, from conception. He shared our birth. And this is an extraordinary thought, especially for those of you who have cradled your children in your arms. He experienced being cradled in his mother's arms, being nourished by her milk, the eternal son, become flesh. And yes, he grew up in a human family with brothers and sisters who weren't always supportive. If you read the gospel, you'll see that. And in his family, he knew grief, the death, the loss of Joseph, Mary's husband, just as he knew what it was to weep at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And just as we work, he knew what it was to work, to work with his hands as a carpenter, hard, tiring labour. He knew, and the references are in the outline, he knew hunger and thirst and weariness, just as he knew joy and thankfulness. And he knew what it was to be tempted, to be enticed to take matters into his own hands and give up on trusting and obeying God. And like we all do from time to time, he contemplated in the garden his own death and he died as we all must. And he experienced all this as a particular man, the individual Jesus. And we can see in the gospel story, his story, that he knew the hardness and bitterness of life as well. His was a family dislocated by the decisions of power-hungry rulers refugees in Egypt before moving to the small town of Nazareth. And there he lived, like most Galilean families at that time, on the edge of want. And when he started his ministry, he experienced rejection by his community at Nazareth, doubt and suspicion from his own family. He's out of his mind, they said. And in his ministry, he knew anger at human unkindness, frustration at persistent unbelief, exhaustion from facing overwhelming need, at times so busy he wasn't even able to eat, so tired he could sleep in a boat through a storm. And yes, he knew what it was to be betrayed, abandoned by friends, mocked, to be publicly shamed, exposed, to be falsely accused, willfully misrepresented, to experience injustice and human cruelty. He experienced pain, new suffering. He knew the hard things of life. And yes, he knew what it was to have prayer not answered in the way he desired. Praying in the garden, let this cup pass from me. But it was still his to drink and to feel abandoned by God. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He cried from the cross. Now, if you know the Gospels, all this 
may be familiar to you. But don't let familiarity blind you to its wonder. This incarnation, this God with us, is unique. It was unique then in the first century. The Greeks knew stories of Zeus disguising himself to mate with women and the offspring becoming kings or demigods with supernatural powers like Heracles or Dionysius. But they knew nothing of God becoming a man to dwell amongst us and share our life to the full and our death. And it's still unique. Hinduism speaks of the appearances, the avatars say of the god Vishnu. Vishnu apparently has had ten major ones, including in the form of a fish, a tortoise and a boar, though we're told that they're actually innumerable. But they are just appearances, temporary, so different from the Son of God becoming man in the Lord Jesus, one who is truly man, truly God, not a temporary appearance, adopting a human form for a time, not a mixing of divine and human inner demigod with superhuman powers, but two natures, divine and human, forever united in the one person. The incarnation of the Son is unique and it is full of comfort and encouragement for those of us who confess Jesus as the living Saviour for any who would turn to him for help. You see, it means he knows us because he is truly one of us. So he knows what we're going through, whether that's the weariness you feel caring for others, the frustrations of being misunderstood, the weakness of a dying body, the grief of loss. You don't have to make Jesus understand the hard experiences. He's been through them. And you don't have to explain to him the struggle you have with temptation. He has felt its power even more strongly than you. But he is not just a sympathetic listening ear. He is the living son of God, powerful to help and knowing the help we need by what he himself has gone through. As the author of Hebrews says, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted... He is able to help those who are tempted. And again, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace, God's throne, with boldness, confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. The reality of the incarnation encourages us to keep turning confidently to Jesus for help, for he knows the help we need. But the fact of the incarnation also challenges the myth that the world is closed to God, that he can't enter his creation, can't intervene. The incarnation says our humanity is no limitation on him, that our life is not closed to God. You cannot shut him out of your world, even if you want to close your eyes to his presence. The creed, like the gospel, asserts the fact that the only Son of God came down from heaven and was made man fully and truly to share our life and our death, God with us. And it tells us how God 
did this. Incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. This is saying the eternal Son of God takes on our flesh, our human life, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And here the creed faithfully reflects the text of the Gospel accounts of Jesus' conception and birth. When Mary asks of the promised birth of the Son, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man, the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow. When Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant, he is assured (coughs) that what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, the virgin birth does not prove the incarnation, but this is the only birth that is consistent with it. See, Mary's called the Virgin Mary because she had not known a man, had not had sexual relations with a man before Jesus' conception, and this was still the case when Jesus is born. Joseph, we're told, did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And this is to make clear that the Lord Jesus did not have a human father. The life of this baby, this man, does not originate with humanity but is from God. Jesus' life comes from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There are no sexual overtones of any kind in the phrases used to describe the origination of Jesus' human life in the womb. The Holy Spirit will come upon you uses the same verb used in the Greek version of Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit comes upon us from on high and the desert will become an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. And it's the same verb used in Acts 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And overshadow is used of God's presence resting over the tabernacle in Exodus 40. And together, these words speak of the presence of God's spirit, the life-giving spirit, in a unique creative act without any physical intervention. So that, as the angel said, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God, called because he is. And the manner of the son becoming flesh assures us of three important things. Firstly, Jesus sharing our life from conception assures us the Lord Jesus is totally, fully human from the beginning. His humanity shares in and is shaped by all that we share in as he experiences the continuous, unbroken development of his human life from conception in the womb. And secondly, Uh, The virgin birth assures us that the son coming to save is all of God and all of grace. The incarnation of the son is God's deliberate intervention to save. Salvation comes to us from outside of us, the free work of God from start to finish. And thirdly, the virgin birth helps us feel the measure of the eternal son's humbling of himself. Not many of us will thankfully be be publicly executed and experience that shame. But we have all been born and seen the helplessness and dependence of babies. 
And here is one through whom all things were made, embracing that helplessness and dependence. And his humbling is even greater, isn't it, when we consider the particularities of his birth, born of a teenage mother with no settled home as a really a poor Galilean family and laid in a manger, the feeding box for animals. And this graciousness that we see in our Lord's birth is seen even more clearly when we consider the reason, the motive for the virgin birth, for the incarnation. It is for us and for our salvation. The eternal Son comes to earth, becomes incarnate in the womb of Mary, humbles himself to take on our humanity and all that means for our sake, to bring us salvation. And here the creed repeats what the angel said to Joseph. You'll call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That the Son has come to save is the consistent message of the gospel of Jesus. When welcoming that tax collector Zacchaeus, Jesus said he had come to seek and save the lost. When Jesus said to Nicodemus that he had to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness to bring life to all who believe, the gospel continues, verse 16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his son. But verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And Paul, instructing the Ephesian church, says a prayer for ruling authorities and for all, this is good and it pleases God our Saviour who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God sends the Son into the world to save, to save as our Hebrews reading reminded us by his death. And we'll think more of that next week. But for now, I want to think about this salvation the creed says the Son came to earth to bring. You see, that phrase, for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, should fill us with awe and wonder and joy. But I fear sometimes it doesn't. And we react instead with apathy and indifference. And we react that way because... Well, there are things that rob us of that joy. We can think too thinly about salvation. We can think too cheaply of salvation. We, think we, we can think we don't need salvation or we think we can't be included in salvation. What I'm going to do now is look at these thieves of joy so we can think too thinly of this salvation and in two ways. Firstly, we can just think in terms of our own individual salvation. When this salvation the Son is incarnate to bring embraces the renewal of all creation. We heard this in Luke. Luke verse 33 talks about the establishment of an eternal kingdom, a forever reign of God's king over God's people. That reign in the Old Testament involves The whole world, as the prophet says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It involves the transformation of creation so that it's without threat or harm, the wolf dwelling with the lamb. Oh, it involves the end of death, the veil that covers all nations. 
It is peace and wholeness for the whole creation where every tear is wiped away by God himself. Oh, and we can also, secondly, focus only on the negative of salvation, what we are saved from and not on the positive, what we are saved for. Think only in terms of not getting what we deserve and not think of getting what we don't deserve. So forgiveness of sins is wonderful, but we are not just forgiven. We are saved to be adopted as God's children, to be given the new life of the Spirit. We are spared trusting Jesus, God's wrath, praise the Lord, but that's not all. We know peace with God. We live, we inhabit grace. So to be saved is to be reconciled to God, to be assured of his grace, to know each day his steadfast love. It's to be free from slavery to sin so that we can live the blessed lives of those who love God's will. And so start to know already in this life wholeness and peace, which we will know forever and to the full in the resurrection. You see, salvation is rich, wide and deep. It is not thin and meagre. And it is a joyous thing to be saved, something to give thanks for every day. And just as we shouldn't think of salvation too thinly, we shouldn't think of it cheaply. Sometimes we can think salvation's easy and to be saved not as valuable as some other things like the opinion of our peers or passing pleasures with the object of our desire, whether that's online or in person or the accumulation of money or just getting our own way. But you see, the value of something is the price somebody is willing to pay for it, isn't it? Everyone who's bought a house knows that. The creed reminds us of the value of this salvation and that it is beyond measuring. For it tells us the cost God was willing to pay to achieve it. It was the cost of the eternal son leaving heaven and the glory he had with the father to be born in a stable. Now can you measure the cost of that to Jesus? It was the cost of the son, the Lord Jesus, God and man dying on the cross. Can you measure the infinite worth of his life? It was the cost of the father giving up his only begotten son, loved in and from eternity, giving him up to shame and humiliation. Can you measure what that cost is love? To say or hear the creed is to be reminded of the worth of this rich salvation, to be reminded of what it cost to obtain it. But perhaps talk of salvation just leaves you unimpressed because you don't think you need salvation or at least any salvation beyond what you yourself can achieve, just like people who are unaware of how quickly the floodwaters were rising at Lismore felt they didn't need help to get to safety. Now, why would you not think you need this rich salvation? I'm going to suggest three ideas, test them. Firstly, you are unaware of God. Perhaps you've dismiss the idea of God or you just don't want to engage with him. Now, there's a bigger conversation to have here, but if you are unaware, it's not for want of trying to get your attention on God's part. He has sent the Son into the world and sent the message of his Son out into the whole world. Well, maybe you hear it, but you're used to dismissing that message. 
too ancient or even too, in your mind, fanciful. Well, if that's you, we need to have a longer conversation. But just think about this one thing. In Luke 1, a song Mary is recorded as uh, a, a, a song of Mary is recorded. And in that song, Mary says this, Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now think of this. How can a first century teenage peasant mum say that and be proved right? Well, let's say you're a sceptic and you think Luke put these words in Mary's mouth. Makes no difference. How can a first century gospel writer write that about a first century peasant girl and be proved right? For it is true every time we confess the creed. We reckon Mary to be blessed. From that time on, every generation of people have called Mary blessed. How can it be true? The most likely explanation is not that, well, this is a cute story of a mum and a baby. And No, at the centre of this story is the horror of crucifixion. The most likely explanation is that people in generation after generation have recognised the greatness of her son because the resurrection the Gospels record is true. And if the resurrection is true, God is in the world and he has spoken and he ought to be listened to and he's knocking on your door and saying, you need saving urgently because of your sin and the rising waters of death will soon overtake you so act. If you're used to just dismissing the story, think about Mary and reconsider. Or maybe you're not aware of your sin or you don't reckon your sin to be serious. The angel said Jesus came to save us from our sins, but actually the whole idea of sin just has no traction with you. Well, our Lord gives us a picture of sin in the story of the prodigal son. You may know it. You know that son? He had no love of his father. He couldn't wait until his father was dead. He wanted to use what the father had given him in ways the father would never approve. And in the story we see he tries to get as far away from the father as possible. So he's free to do whatever he wants with what the father's given him. Now we are all sinners because all of us in our dealings with God are like that prodigal. We want God out of our lives. We want to use what God has given us, our lives, as we please without reference to God. We see relating to God, being thankful to God, honouring him, doing what he says as a burden. And that real life is being free to do whatever we want without acknowledging God. Now that attitude is sin. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's fine, I'm glad God's out of my life. But two problems, and the first is this. Actually, your sin messes up life and causes harm to others. You see, where each of us decides for ourselves what's right and wrong, what we will tolerate and what we won't, there inevitably clashes. And the strong physically, emotionally, economically get their own way in relationships, in the home, in society, and leave others wronged whether that's suffering from violence or economic injustice or emotional coercion. And where each of us is concerned to protect ourselves and our right to rule our lives at whatever cost, there will be harm. 
There will be lying, disobedience to parents, ingratitude, destruction of trust and much more. We are all sinners. Scripture says our sin justly brings death, eternal death, hell, described as weeping and gnashing of teeth as the fire that never goes out and unshielded experiences, an unshielded experience of God's just and holy wrath. And while God is patient now waiting for you to return, that will run out. But that brings me to the third reason you may think you don't need salvation. You've minimised the seriousness of death, which is an event of great moral moment, ushering us into the presence of God. But you might have chosen to believe that it will all end at your death. But God says that judgment follows death and he has raised Jesus from the dead to let us know that it is certain. The one person who can speak with authority about what happens after death is Jesus. More, the Father has entrusted that judgment to the incarnate Son, to the Lord Jesus. Peter says to Cornelius, he has commanded us, that's the apostles, to preach to the people and testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And yes, all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Hear that, the one born into the world to save, the one who has experienced injustice on earth will be judged then. And his incarnation ensures us of the justice, ensures the justice of that judgment. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He can see through our excuses. It won't be a case of he said this or she said that. There won't be doubt about his assessment of the facts or his weighing of the motives. And you won't be able to justify your failure to love God or love others by saying, but you don't know what it's like. Or if you'd been in my shoes, you would have done the same. Or I had no choice because you'll be speaking to the one who has shown it is right to die rather than disobey God. And he has been in your shoes. We do sin and we are trapped in sin, our own and the sin of others, bringing regret and pain and shame. We die and our race is marked by grief, a growing grief and heartache as the years go by. We face judgment and we'll be justly condemned in that judgment and we cannot free ourselves from sin, cannot hold death back, cannot escape the last judgment We need salvation. We need rescue. We need, all of us, a saviour. The saviour God has sent, the son, the Lord Jesus, who has authority to judge and thankfully to forgive. But not thinking you need salvation may not be your issue. Maybe you hear all this talk about salvation but it leaves you cold. Oh, intellectually you get it, but in your heart you've convinced yourself you can't be saved. You're too messed up, too much of a failure, living with a quiet desperation, counting the disappointments and regretting your role in them. 
And yes, maybe trying to numb that ache in your heart with things that don't help, drink or drugs or porn or gambling, and thinking all the time that wholeness, peace, can never be yours. Well, it's for us men, humans, and our salvation. The salvation the Son brings with his coming is for all. The incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus, is the saviour of the world. And the world are all those who are living alienated from God. The Lord Jesus, if you will turn to him, call upon him, trust him, will save you. And that's what he came to do. Later in Luke 1, we hear Mary rejoicing in the saviour she was carrying in her womb. Here's God's mercy, she sung. He's from generation to generation to those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And he's helped his servant Israel remembering his mercy. The living almighty God sends the Son to bring mercy to give the life and peace and forgiveness we need and could never deserve. And he brings this mercy to the needy. He's come for the hungry and the lowly, not for the full or the proudly self-confident and the self-sufficient. He's come for you. And if you doubt his power and authority to show you mercy, to fill your emptiness, Remember what the angel said to Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible for our Saviour. God will save you if you call out to his son Jesus. The salvation God the Father sent the eternal son into the world to bring by becoming incarnate in the womb of Mary is wonderful. It is rich, costly, beyond imagination, necessary, And for all. And I hope and trust that most of you actually do know that for yourself as you believed in Jesus. Know the joy both of what you are saved from and for. Know yourself forgiven, a child of God. Know the hope of the end of death, the renewal of all creation, your own resurrection. Know each day peace with God and his steadfast love, yours because God sent the Son, and the Son humbled himself to be born one of us and to die for us. And if that is you, let it show in joy and thankfulness. Whether we're healthy and prospering, or whether we're in the slow grind of the weariness and grief of this life, tasting like our Lord some of its bitterness, Be giving thanks for salvation, for he has made it yours and yours forever. And shouldn't we want to share what we confess in believing the gospel, to share from the joy of our hearts, not just a conviction of the truth of the gospel, but the goodness of being saved, 
You see, it's salvation. The Son of God was born as a man to bring. Not moralism, not a better philosophy, not religious rituals to earn God's favour, but rescue. We say he left heaven to save. He endured death to save. He himself sought out the lost to save. We say it and hopefully we believe it. But how hard-hearted are we if thanking God for salvation ourselves, we do not want others to be saved, are not praying to God to save others, are not ourselves seeking to bring the good news of salvation to others, are not willing to pay a cost to bring that salvation to a world ensnared in sin and the hurt it brings and facing death and judgment. We believe, every one of us who's a Christian, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. That is a confession that should take our breath away. The eternal Son, taking on our life and all that means, and we see it in the gospel, for us, not just unimportant people, and that is us, but sinful and helpless people, undeserving, taking on our life to bring us this rich salvation promised by God. The eternal son taking on our life to be our Savior a saviour who knows us and can always help us, a saviour who can save us to the full and forever, a saviour to be loved, trusted, obeyed, rejoiced in and shared always. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray of your mercy that you would give us living hearts, hearts that are moved by the reality of your love, hearts that are moved to wonder and praise at the gift of your Son. Uh, give us these hearts, we pray, so that our lives are lives of joy and thankfulness, that honours you for giving us such a saviour and so that from the abundance of our hearts we share this joy, the good of being saved. Our Father, please work in us to your honour and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.